Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic Sea Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by coronatools.com, the nation's leader in garden and landscaping tools. Listeners of The Organic View can receive 20% off their coronatools.com purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, Tom and I are going to continue the discussion about the recent EU ban on neonicotinoids and how this may or may not impact the rest of the world. Also, we are going to talk about the lawsuit Tom's involved with as it pertains to the new farm bill. And lastly, we're going to readdress the importance of swarming. So I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Colorado beekeeper, Mr. Tom Theobald. Hello, Tom. Hello, June. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here again. We're having a nice sunny day after two days of rain and about two inches, which is a major rainfall for us in the arid west. And sun is out this morning and the bees are flying vigorously. They've been cooped up for two days as well, and they're happy to be out. So times are good. It's springtime, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thanks, Tom. I understand that this decision in the EU last Friday really did make a very big splash, not just on social media, but throughout all the different communities, whether it's the beekeeping community, the growers community, even within the pesticide manufacturers community, if you want to describe it as such. But the bottom line is is that there are so many discussions that are now becoming more important as far as a decision. Okay, what should we do or what needs to be done? And I think this decision last Friday, even though it was just three neonicotinoids, it really did get the world's attention because people are starting to say, okay, this is pretty serious. It's not something that's been solved because there was a lot of a lot of information that was disseminated to allude that there was no problem, that this was just something temporary because of the use of that clever term, colony collapse disorder, which we know is more or less a symptom. And it begs the question, okay, what is going to happen next? I know that there have been a lot of talks about a ban on neonicotinoids in Australia. And I know Canada there is so much effort being made, and we've featured a number of the leaders within not only the beekeeping community, but in the agricultural community as well, scientists from Canada that have been talking about the aggressive steps that they're taking to do the same. So what are your thoughts, Tom? Boy, it's hard to say where this is going to go. This is certainly a major decision. If for no other group than the European Union, this is a major decision. And you need to understand a little bit of the history of it. Um, this goes back for several years. And in 2013, there were certain restrictions passed by the European Union that... Uh, 
were kind of a test, I guess. And this is the culmination of that and several years of review of the science, which is an important part of this decision. EFSA, which is our equivalent to, or their equivalent to the EPA, European Food Safety Agency, I believe is what that stands for. EFSA has been evaluating literally hundreds, if not over a thousand, scientific studies that have connected the dots between the neonicotinoids and not only the loss of the honeybee, but the bumblebees and many other pollinators and many other uh, life forms at the lower end of the food chain. So it's a major decision. Whether it's going to have an, an impact beyond the European Union is yet to be seen. No word from the EPA here in the United States, and the likelihood is that they will head for the bunker and not face these problems. Uh, they've done everything they can to, to avoid and discount the science because they are... Uh, they are an agency of the chemical industry, unfortunately, at least the portion that we deal with, the Office of Pesticide Programs. And uh, they've done everything they can to hide the damages that are being caused because they've been a part of what's led us to this disaster. So it's yet to be seen whether there will be a ripple effect around the globe of the EU decision. Well, it's kind of interesting if you look at it from the perspective that anything that is out there, any effort, should I say, that is out there to protect either the environment or a particular species, whether it's human, animal, what have you, the opposition is always focused on the financial component, which is how much money can be made or how much money will they lose. So, folks, if you think about this across the board, this is a very very true point and it doesn't matter what it is as I said if it's environmental or with animals whatever so I don't think that in the United States we're going to have the collaboration that occurred in Europe to get these pesticides banned as Tom points out every week there's a lot of profit to be gained, and until that iron fist comes down and says, okay, enough is enough, we're going to keep at this. You know, it kind of leads us into the uh, next thing that we wanted to talk about, which was the lawsuit in which I was a plaintiff and the uh, the farm bill that's being debated right now. And I don't know all the ins and outs of the farm bill, but there is one aspect of it that caught my attention. I was one of four beekeeping plaintiffs in the lawsuit that was filed about five years ago this past March, I think was the anniversary. A very large lawsuit covering a lot of different items, and this was pared down by the court to one final element, and a decision was rendered by the court. And that had to do with the EPA's registration of 59 different neonicotinoid products and its failure to follow federal law consistently, systematically is the term that the court used, systematically violated federal law in the registration of those products. 
And what they had done is they had failed to consult with other agencies and honor the Endangered Species Act. Well, we've just finished the final filings on this lawsuit. It's been five years, and the EPA, along with uh, several chemical companies, uh, it, called interveners, I think. I would call them co-conspirators, but the EPA has spent five years and millions of taxpayer dollars to defend its right to systematically violate the law. Now, that's pretty astounding in its own right, but I learned about a week ago that this is one of the elements that's proposed for the upcoming Farm Bill, that the EPA be relieved of any obligation under the law to consult with other agencies and honor the Endangered Species Act. So what's the effect of this decision in the European Union here in the United States? Well, this is what we're up against, this kind of attitude. Um, I'm not too optimistic that we're going to see progress here in the United States. When it comes to the Farm Bill, unfortunately, I don't know of anybody that's ever read it from first page to last. And that's part of the problem. It's like with any of the bills that they push through. They make them so long and so incredibly complicated, it makes a lot of wiggle room where there shouldn't be, and it cuts the fat where they shouldn't. Well, we're dealing with a capitalist system gone mad. This is a situation where the criminals are making the regulations and the laws that make the crimes legitimate. We're in a horrible state. We are, but the problem is is that with regards to the farm bill, it affects so many different areas within agriculture and the only consistent the only consistency seems to be as far as profits are concerned. And let's face it, the US government does have a relationship with industry for a reason. They do stand to gain a lot of money. And unfortunately that's really what it's about. Yeah, I don't have the answer. It's very uh, concerning, though, what, what we're up against. Well, they've tried to sneak in things in the farm bill before that did not serve the people. So we'll see what happens. That's kind of how it is when it comes to any type of change. The last topic that needs to be talked about, again, and I know we talk about it every year, but it's swarming. So many people talk about how they're finding swarms of bees and the first thing that they do is they immediately reach for a pesticide. So Tom, can you please just take a moment and explain the importance of a swarm and why people need to do something other than kill these animals? Swarms are a wonderful natural event and uh, anyone who gets to see a swarm is is very lucky because not too many people see them. And here's why the bees swarm. They might go into the fall with 30,000 bees in the hive, and that dwindles over the course of the winter down to 10 or 15,000, maybe a little less. Then in March, they begin to come back up the growth curve again. 
Some of the early trees are flowering. There's a pollen source. The queen is laying again. The population is building. They go through two or three brood cycles. And we get to April. And here in the West, and over much of the country, although the timing might be a little different, about the 20th or 23rd is the figure that sticks in my mind. We're in the middle of the dandelion flow, which is the end of winter, an abundant source of nectar and pollen. And the bees respond to that as a colony. And if they aren't tended to, they will begin to run out of room. If they're in a hollow tree or they're in a hive where they haven't gotten additional room, they begin to run out of room. They feel crowded. What that does with a colony of bees is that induces them to begin to raise new queens, queen cells. They'll take a larva that's less than a day old, an egg that has just hatched. They'll draw a cell that hangs down from the side of the comb that looks sort of like a peanut. They'll feed that larva differently, and that larva will differentiate into a queen. Now, they will probably do several of those, and when those queens are about to emerge, the roughly half the population of the colony will do what we call swarm. It's uh, the younger bees that go with the queen primarily, and they'll come out of the hive. There's a lot of activity in front of the hive, this big cloud of bees. When I was looking at the bees this morning after these two days of rain, there was a lot of activity, and the question is, are they getting ready to swarm, or are they just happy to be out after being confined for a couple of days? For an experienced beekeeper, there's a sound associated with a swarm. Uh, but to the average person, lots of bees in the air could be lots of different things. In any event, they didn't swarm this morning, but let's assume that they were going to swarm. What would happen is the old queen the queen that was the head of that colony, at some point will fly out. She'll join that cloud of bees, and off they go. And they've spent a week or two prior to this investigating sites that they might go to. And I have no idea how they figure out which one they're going to go to, but I have seen scout bees checking out cavities and then subsequently have seen a swarm move into that cavity. So this is only the second time in the queen's life that she has flown. So she's generally, she stops egg-laying just prior to this, so that lightens her up a little bit. But she doesn't usually go too far, and usually a swarm will land on the first thing that sticks out of the ground. It could be a fence post, a mailbox. It could be your neighbor's doorknob if you're in the suburbs. That's just a temporary resting place. And that swarm will, could take off that afternoon. More likely, we'll spend the night. These are the young bees. They have no territory to protect. They're not the least bit aggressive, and they're of no danger whatsoever to anything. A beekeeper can come and hive them. Usually, they'll spend the first night. The middle of the next morning, they'll take off, and they're off to some site that they have selected prior to this could be a hollow tree could be an empty hive somewhere could be the wall of a vacant building could be a lot of things this is how the bees increase their numbers 
They swarm in the spring primarily. It's very unusual to have spring, uh, swarms at other times of the year. And the first swarm is called the prime swarm, the largest swarm usually. And then there'll be some secondary swarms in a really strong colony as the new queens emerge. Some of those new queens will take off with a portion of the population until the, pr this, the crowding pressure is taken off the hive and things go back to normal. Swarms are a very beneficial thing. You don't have to be afraid of them. In almost all parts of the country, beekeepers are eager to capture swarms if they're within reasonable reach. doesn't require anything life-threatening to get them. And in our area, we have a, a swarm control uh, group that channels all of these swarms. Unfortunately, I don't have the number in front of me. I should have, but uh, they will take swarm calls and they will connect those swarms with beekeepers who have volunteered to, to get swarms. In other parts of the country, uh, you might call the police department. You might I would call, call your local cooperative extension. Or the fire department is a good yeah, that's, uh, that's a good idea. Yeah, the, a lot of times beekeepers will make themselves known to the police department or the fire department. Here we're a little more organized, so we're a little more formal. Um, well, every state does have an agricultural extension, so if you contact your county's cooperative extension, they usually can provide names and phone numbers of local beekeepers that will yes. take the swarms. Or you could just Google your local beekeeping club would be great. Yeah, almost anywhere in the country it's pretty easy to connect those swarms with, a, with an interested beekeeper one way or another, and it doesn't take too long to make that connection. No, it certainly doesn't, and especially with the cost of bees, because the beekeepers are really going above and beyond to keep their bees healthy and alive. So, well, we have, a new we have a new generation of beekeepers who are doing as much as they can to help, but like everybody else, their losses have been very high. And the, the life expectancy of that swarm is probably greater in the hands of a competent beekeeper than it is to be in a hollow tree or uh, the wall of a building somewhere. If it's captured by a beekeeper, then it has a leg up on the problems that all the bees are facing. So we try to get as many of those swarms in the hands of, of good beekeepers as we can. Thank you, Tom. And folks, Please reach out to us if you have any questions. I would just like to say thank you so much to one of our local listeners, Jill Cardillo, who listened for the very first time to the show that we did last week on the EU ban on neonicotinoids. And just want to thank her for her wonderful comments. And also, I'd like to give a shout out to, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name properly, but Vikram Jeet Singh Mindy and to Santampan Barua and also our friend from New Zealand, Alika Wells, who is doing some research. It's so nice to get the feedback, especially from a place so far away as New Zealand. So thank you so much, Alika. It's always great to hear from our listeners wherever you're located. Please feel free to connect with us either on social media or you can email us at questions at theorganicview.com. 
Thank you, June, and thank you to all our listeners. I sometimes sit in a 125-year-old farmhouse and marvel at the fact that I communicate with the globe. It's uh, pretty amazing, and uh, I appreciate you providing the menu, the, <laughs> the venue, and uh, all of those people around the globe who listen. I wanted to make one little note about the Mason Bee. This is the peak of the Mason Bee season. I'm enjoying watching them nest, and although they've co-evolved with the fruit bloom, some of those female mason bees are coming in just absolutely yellow. They're just bathing in the dandelion flowers, so they aren't totally exclusive to the fruit bloom, and it's a wonder to watch them. We'll have another two weeks maybe, and then it will be all over. And on that note, in regards to dandelions, Folks, just a quick little tip. If you do harvest the dandelion flowers, you can use something as simple as Trader Joe's pancake mix, and you can simply mix the pancake batter with some water and make it so that it's wet enough so that you can make a coating on the dandelions and fry them in vegetable oil, and they make delicious fritters. They're also very healthy. Granted, fried foods are not always thought of as something that's healthy or nutritious, but if you can make the fritters or even if you can bake them, they're absolutely fantastic, and there's so many medicinal benefits to the dandelions. It's something that you've got to try at least once. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Tune in next week as Tom and I continue the discussion. I look forward to it. Every week is something new.